Well, happy Mother's Day. I said that in my prayer this morning to mothers in this room. Um, we're in a great passage for you this morning. We're in Habakkuk. Can you imagine Habakkuk for Mother's Day? Uh, and I hope and pray mothers will find this hopeful. I, find, I hope all of the, excuse me, I hope all of us will find this um, helpful this morning. Um, it's a helpful passage. Um, I, I'm taking the month of May uh, to just do some topics. Beginning in June, we will jump into another book, the book of John. And so that's coming up in a few weeks. But the book of Habakkuk, one of the minor prophets, not minor because it's of an, no importance, minor because it's, one, it's a small book, a small prophetic book. Thirteen of these, by the way, uh, are in the Old Testament. Uh, if you're turning to Habakkuk, don't feel bad if you can't find it. It's just a few pages there. Uh, if you're sitting next to somebody that knows where it's at, you're, you're blessed. Uh, but Nahum and Zephaniah, does that help? Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, I'm sure that helped. But the end of the Old Testament, you come to the book of Habakkuk. And it's okay to use your table of contents. But um, I taught this many years ago here at Grace Church. I went through this short book. Um, and I found it so helpful, and the message is so relevant. Uh, 2,700 years ago, this was written, 2,700 years ago, and it's so relevant to today. It's so relevant to when life seems confusing, when things going on in our world seem so confusing, and you wonder, God, are you just indifferent to all of it? God, do you know what's going on? God, uh, does it make any sense? Uh, it's that kind of a letter Oh, excuse me, that's kind of a book, prophecy. It's not really a letter. Um, it's a conversation, <laughs> more than anything else, between God and Habakkuk. But uh, God, why do you allow so much suffering? Those are the kind of questions that come up in the book of Habakkuk. I bet some of you didn't even know this. But that's the kind of things that are in there. Uh, why does he allow so much injustice, uh, so much corruption? Those are the kind of things Habakkuk asks. And uh, uh, God, if you hate evil, why is there so much of it? Um, and I know you've prayed that, I've prayed that. God, how much longer can you just let it go on like this? We've all prayed like that. And uh, that seems to be what Habakkuk is experiencing as well. When are things going to get back to normal, or is there a normal to go back to? You know, those kind of questions. Look at the opening verses, Habakkuk 1, verses 1 through 4. Sounds like the headlines of this morning's paper, is what it sounds like. This is what's happening in Israel. Uh, this is what Habakkuk is seeing. We're told in verse 1 of Habakkuk chapter 1. O Lord, how long, verse 2, how long, O Lord, will I call for help and you will not hear? I cry out to you, violence, yet you do not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore, the law is ignored and justice is upheld. Excuse me, is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. All sounds familiar. All sounds very familiar. Written 2,700 years ago by this no-name prophet. And it's just as relevant, like I said, today as it was then. In biblical history, you know the storyline of the Bible. You know how things started in the garden. Then we had the fall. And then God begins the plan of redemption. He calls out a nation, the nation Israel. This nation is to be, get the law of God and be a light to the nations and to take that into all the world. That is their mission. They're called out to be the people of God. 
And you know the story, they fail a lot. And it's, uh, it's just uh, falling into all kinds of sins along the way. Um, and God raises up a king to rule. And um, every generation starts going their own way. And you know the story about the kings. You get good, bad, 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 good, bad, bad. I mean, it's like that. If you read about the kings in the Old Testament uh, and all the corruption and all the evil and all the idolatry that the nation Israel falls into. That's the storyline of the book of, of, uh, of the Old Testament. Calling out this people, light to the nations, and they fail and they get kings that they deserve and uh, Solomon, David comes into reign. Solomon comes into reign. There's corruption even in their kingdoms. After Solomon, his two sons come to the th- his son comes to the throne, but the kingdom gets divided. Now you got two Israels, northern and, su- and southern kingdom. Civil wars, all kinds of things break out. Different agendas in these two kingdoms. Um, it's kind of depressing. And then you come to Habakkuk, and Habakkuk is a time actually uh, in Habakkuk's life when a good king was ruling, Josiah. Josiah was a good king. Eighteen years into his reign as the king, uh, he, he found the law hidden. They hadn't opened it in a long time. They had not opened the God's word in a long time. He, they find it. It's read to him. He says, oh my goodness, we've been doing things wrong. And Josiah gets rid of all the idols Josiah calls the nation to repentance. Josiah does, he just starts doing everything right, turning the nation around. And then Josiah dies. And Jehoiakim comes in, and he's a bad king. And things start to go downhill again. And that's where Habakkuk comes in. He's seeing things going downhill again. He's seeing them return to idolatry again. He's seeing the nation turn evil again. He's seeing injustices everywhere, violence everywhere. And it's what he's writing about. He's having a conversation with God. God, how long? You're going to make me watch this. How long do we have to see this? Lawlessness, this major political change. Now we're an ungodly nation once again. How long is this going? Aren't you going to do something about it? That's his question. Aren't you going to do something about it? And that's the same questions. That we're asking, God, what are you doing? What are you doing? And so this book helps us. And how we respond when we don't understand. We don't understand. God just seems indifferent at times. I want to look at some responses that, that Habakkuk models for us or Habakkuk uh, is told to do, how to respond to all this. And this is a different kind of book, I've told you. It's uh, more of a conversation. It starts out with a conversation between God and Habakkuk. In chapter 2, God gives a response. In chapter 3, Habakkuk responds in prayer. That's kind of how the outline goes. The first response, you don't see it written out, but it's going to be sort of in the white spaces of your Bible. And it's sort of modeled for us, so stay with me on this one. And this is the point right here. And this is an important point. And like I said, it's in the white spaces. But you see, this is what's happening. Habakkuk models this kind of response for us. Turn to God with your questions. He can handle them, okay? Turn to God with your questions. 
That's what you see him doing here. Not a, the tendency sometimes is to turn away. He says, you turn to God, and he turns to God with his questions. And I, I read those opening verses to you. How long, O oh Lord, will I call for help? I just read those to you. What are you doing, God? This doesn't make sense. Now, in verse 5, God responds. This is chapter 1, verse 5. Look among the nations. This is God talking now. Look among the nations. Observe. Be astonished. Wonder. Behold, because I am doing something in your days. You would not believe it if you were told. Okay, okay, you want to know what's going on? I will tell you, and you're not going to believe it. Be astonished. You ask, what are you about to do, God? And basically, God is going to tell him this, and this is the answer. He's going to say, if you think it's bad now, it's only going to get worse. That is the answer that he's about to give Habakkuk. Verse 6, for behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that's the Babylonians, that fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. This superpower is going to come on the scene and they're going to go through the earth and annihilate everything. The Assyrian Empire is fading and now it's going to come the Babylonian Empire and your cities are going to be affected. What? What? God, you're going to raise up a pagan nation to do that to us? You're going to let pagans come in and do that? God-hating people come in and destroy your people? What are you doing? And God describes them their power in the next verses. They're a dreaded and feared people. Their justice and authority, verse 7, originates from themselves. They've got fast horses. Uh, they've got a powerful army. They come for violence, verse 9. They collect captives like sand, verse 9. Um, they mock at kings. They're not afraid of fortresses, verse 10. They laugh at them. They heap rubble. Uh, and capture it. Verse 11, then they will sweep through like the wind and pass on, but they will be held guilty, those, notice, whose strength is their God. That's, he's describing the Babylonians. This is what's going to happen. They're going to come in. They're going to come into the land. So, feeling some tension here, and confusion here, feels like he's going to defend God a little bit. Verse 12, he says, are you not from everlasting, O Lord? Habakkuk is speaking now, verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We will not die. You, O Lord, have appointed them to judge, and you, O Rock, have established them to correct. I know you're not going to kill us. We have the promise you're not going to kill us. We know that you're eternal, that you're our God, our Holy One. You are a rock. They're going to correct us. Verse 13, your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you can not look on wickedness with favor. So he says, God, I know you're an everlasting God. You're a holy God. You're the one who's running everything, and I know you, and your eyes are too pure to look on wickedness. You cannot tolerate evil. How can you do this? That's the question. How can you do this? Look at 13b. Why do you look with favor on those who dealt treacherously? Why are you silent? when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? That's a question. Why do the wicked prosper? <laughs> One writer says. Why are you going to let the Babylonians, who are clearly more wicked than us, let them win? Next verse, 14. 
Why have you made men like fish of the sea, like creeping things without a ruler over them? The Chaldeans bring all of them with a hook. They're like fishermen. They're like, they have their nets. They're going to treat us like fish. We're like fish, and they're going to come in and just scoop us up and leave us on the shore to die. You know, God, that's what we f- we're like. This does not make sense. In light of who I know you to be, and this is me and you talking. In light of who I know you to be, why is it like this? Why is it going to be like this? Why are you allowing this? I know what you hate. I know what you love. How do you tolerate all this? That's the question. And so Habakkuk, the first response that Habakkuk has for us in this short book is he models for us You just turn to him with your hard questions. Just turn to him with hard questions. All believers should do that. Turn to God when things in life seem confusing. See, God can handle our hard questions even if you don't understand. You know, there's just something that happens in your heart when you turn to God in the struggle. Many are tempted to turn away. Uh, but when you turn to him, there's just something that happens in the heart that struggles through these difficult things. A thousand things go wrong when you turn away from God. A th- lots of things go wrong when you turn away from God because things are tough and difficult and you don't understand the world. You, you'll take things into your own hands or do something. He turns to God. God, I, this, I'm struggling with this help me through this I but I I really believe that there's encouragement when we go to God in our struggles there's something you can get from this book let that be the first thing go to God when I'm struggling with things like this every good thing begins when I turn to him in chapter in the beginning of chapter 2 Habakkuk says one more thing I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart and I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved do you see what he's saying now I just said all this I'm just gonna stand back and watch now and wait it's almost like he anticipates I'm gonna be reproved now by God and God answers in 2 2 in the beginning this is God speaking again And God's going to give a response, another response he wants us to have here. He reads in, beginning in verse 2, this is God speaking. The Lord answered me and said, record the vision, inscribe it on tablets, that the one who reads it may run, for the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal and it will not fail. God says, here it is, here it comes, write it down. Though it tarries, wait for it, for it will certainly come, it will not delay. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. There you go. This is another way God wants us to respond in times like this. The righteous will live by his faith. Believe him and trust him and lean on him and take what he says and run with it. God says there's two ways to live. There's two ways to live. There's the way of the proud and the ungodly. You see that in verse 4? Like the, like the Psalms, the wicked um, are like chaff in the wind. They're blown away and they're no more. 
And then there's faith. The one who lives, the, the, the one who, every fallen sinful person trusts in themselves. You understand that? You, you come to Christ because you don't trust yourself. You lay aside that trust to trust in Him. You either trust in Him or you trust in yourself. The proud trust in himself. And he says, no, the righteous shall live by his faith. The fallen sinful man wants to go his own way, be his own judge, determine what is right and wrong, determine what is best. That is in every man and every woman. And that's why he highlights this. And it's not just the Babylonians that are like this. Even the Jews at this time, they were turning from God to idols. But he says there's two ways to live, for ourselves or to live by faith in the Lord. That's what he's saying. And so God's calling them back in that verse to living by faith alone in God alone. And a better way to translate verse 4 is to say, the righteous will live by his faithfulness. And don't get tripped up by this, because faith is not a one-time event. Understand that. Faith is not just an event that took place at camp. Faith is not just an event that took place at some crusade I went to. Faith is an ongoing. A man will live by his faithfulness. The faith that started him and the faith that continues that is true saving faith. The righteous are like that. They have faith that justifies them and faith that sanctifies them. It doesn't just stop at conversion. We keep on believing. We keep on um, because we don't really have any other way to relate to God except through faith. And anytime there's a difficulty or a hardship, God is asking you the question, will you trust me? That's what's going on here. Will you trust me? The righteous will live by his faith. Will you remember what I said and act on it? That's what faith is. Doing what I want to do or, doing, or trusting God to, by doing what he wants, to do, wants me to do. That's faith. When I'm faced with a decision, it's faith that even though it may not seem the best approach, it's I'm trusting God that it is because it's what he says to do. Or do I just go my own way and do what my flesh wants to do and do what my own thinking tells me I should do? It's a very important statement. Um, will you trust me? Will you trust me in times like this? It's interesting, the word is quoted in the New Testament, that, excuse me, 2.4. Habakkuk 2.4 is quoted three times in the New Testament. It's quoted in Romans 1.17 and Galatians 3.11. And in those verses, that it is used to refer to saving faith, justification, that we're by faith alone in Christ alone. It's used in that sense in those two verses, Romans 1.17 and Galatians 3.11. But when you come to Hebrews 10.38, it's used in a sanctification sense. It's something that we, we continue to do. We trust Him for salvation and we continue to trust Him for our sanctification 
salvation from ourselves. And the very fact that uh, Habakkuk says these things should tell us that salvation has always been by faith. We're talking Old Testament here. It's not a new plan in the New Testament. It's a new content because it's in Christ. But the plan has always been faith alone. We live by faith and we keep on living by faith. And no matter how out of control things get in this context in Habakkuk, no matter how out of control things get, we believe. We believe His promises and we lean on His word and things are confusing. We just believe and trust Him. You know, I like resolution to things. I like when things are brought to closure. I like when justice is upheld. I like all that, like you do. But there are times it's not going to be that way, and I still must trust. I still trust. I still believe that he knows what he's doing, that he's in control, and that there's some, some way this works out for his purpose. So just a very simple point here. Trust me. That's what Habakkuk is told to do. Trust me. The righteous lives by his faith. Lean on what you know. In Habakkuk chapter 2, he goes through verses 6 through 19. Now it's a series of woes and judgments. And he's announcing a woe is when you announce a judgment on certain people. And that's what he's doing here. He's announcing a judgment on the Babylonians, verses 6 through 8, he's, because of what they're going to do. And the point of this section here is, uh, I know what's going on. You ask me, do I not see this? I see this. I know what's going on. I know what the Babylonians are like, and I know what they're going to do. He goes through and pronounces these woes, and I will, I will bring about justice one day. Notice in verses 6 through 8, he's just, let me just summarize these for you. Verses 6, six through 8, he points out uh, their violence and their bloodshed. Um, they make themselves rich off of other people. Uh, woe to him, the middle of verse 6, woe to him and increase, increases what is not his. Uh, verse 7, indeed you will become plunder for them. He's talking about you're taking from people, one day they're going to take from you. Verse 8, this is a judgment. This is a judgment that's going to come on them one day. Because you have looted many nations, verse 8, all the remainder of the peoples will loot you. This is all, the tables will turn one day, Babylon. The, tra- the tables will turn. Um, in verses 9 through 11, he, he shows how their wickedness will not stand. Verse 9 says, Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house. It says in verse 10, you have devised a shameful thing for your house by cutting off many peoples. And then he says, surely the stone will cry out from the wall and the rafter will answer it from the framework. It's all going to come crashing down someday. Babylon thinks they're mighty and powerful and they can steal from people and they can destroy people and destroy people's homes. He says one day all of that's going to happen to them. That's, that's, the, that's the, the message of these woes. You see in verses 12 through 14, he's saying your time is short, Babylon. Notice in uh, verse 12, woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed, which is what they were doing. 
founds a town with violence. Is it not indeed from the Lord of hosts that peoples toil for fire and nations grow weary for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. In verses 15 through 17, he condemns their bloodshed. You made people drink the cup of their blood, of death. He says, you too are going to have to drink that cup one day. And so just gives these woes. Woe to you who make your neighbors drink, who mix your venom in your venom, even to make them drunk so as to look at their nakedness. Middle of verse 16, the cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter disgrace will come upon your glory. So God's answering. That's what God is doing here. He's answering Habakkuk and saying justice is coming. I know how bad things are. I know how bad things are going to be. But I want to assure you that evildoers will be punished. Evildoers will have a day of reckoning with God. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And he wants, uh, wants Habakkuk to understand that. Because Habakkuk doesn't think God sees what's happening or knows what's happening or going to happen. And he gives the assurance that he does. So the second one is you, you just believe God. I believe that you will make justice right one day. There's so much injustice. I don't like seeing it, God. I hate it. But he hates it more, and he will one day bring about justice. And then there's another response, and that is to remember God's goal. To remember God's goal. And this is an important one. Remember God's goal. Go back up to verse 12 of chapter 2. Why is God delaying justice? That's the question. Why are you delaying justice on these people? And the answer is found in these three, these, this, this particular woe. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and founds a town with violence. Is it not indeed from the Lord of hosts that peoples toil for fire and nations grow weary for nothing? What he's saying here in these verses, it's kind of hard to understand, but what he's saying here is nations rise up and nations fall. People rise up and people fall. This is a cycle that he's talking about. Uh, where is the Babylonian Empire today? They're gone. Where's the Assyrian Empire today? They're gone. Where's the Roman Empire today? It's gone. These, these empires come and they go. What they build, the greatness with what, of the things they build, end up being fuel for fire. It's a cycle. It's a cycle. Nations come and nations go, and God is saying here, that serves my purpose. That serves my purpose. They, they do all of this, they destroy and they fight and they get burned up. They grow weary. They're, it's futile. And he says, but it's my purpose because he says in verse 14, 4, because, because one day the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the water covers the sea. God gets the last word. But also, this brings in, somehow, God's glory. God is glorified. That's the important part here. Remember, remember God's purposes. God raises up and God takes down. 
And that cycle pleases God. Nations rising, nations falling. It pleases God. It reminds me of Psalm 2. The nations roar and the Lord laughs. They think they're so great. They think they're so mighty. They think they're so powerful. And one day, God will let them know who's really powerful and who's really in charge and who's really in control. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the water covers the sea. He will get the last word. And see, you could ask the question in, in Habakkuk's mind still is, how can Babylon ransacking nations, killing people, destroying land and the temp, our temple, how does that serve your purpose to fill the, the earth with your glory? And God does not answer that question for him at all. God does not tell him how or why. God does not give all the puzzle pieces to Habakkuk. He doesn't give him the whole picture. He just says, this is what's going to happen. This is the purpose. They, all these things serve my purposes. Listen, think about what we know that Habakkuk did not know. Habakkuk did not know that during Babylonian captivity, Nebuchadnezzar would hear the gospel. During Babylonian captivity, Habakkuk did not know that Belshazzar would hear the gospel. During Babylonian captivity, the Jews are basically finally set free from idolatry. Idol worship is no longer a problem after the Babylonian captivity. I'm just saying Habakkuk on the front end of this Babylonian invasion had no idea of what it would accomplish for the glory of God and what the purposes of God were in making it happen. He's got a goal, and, and if there's a right response to our world and to anything and the things happening in our world, it's remembering that God's got a purpose, God's in control. We can't see all the puzzle pieces. We can't see where everything's headed. We can't see the bigger picture of what God has in mind, except to know this, that he wants, as we saw in verse 14, the earth to be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. That's why he rises up and takes down. I mean, I can look back in your, your life and my life and I, I can look back and say, oh, I understand better now. I see now. I don't have the perspective at the beginning, but I look back and I go, wow, I'm glad you did that, God. You're much wiser than me. Your plans are not my ways. Your thoughts are not my thoughts at all. I'm not even close. But God, you do things. You do things. I can't see you working out your agenda, but you've got one. There's a purpose in all things. And I think he sees us watching our political leaders fail so drastically and so horribly so that we won't put our trust in them. But that's a very dangerous thing to put your trust in a political leader. You're learning that, I have. We all learned that, haven't we? We, he lets it fail before our eyes so we can see we can't put our trust in that. The freedoms that we have seem to be eroding. And once again, he's trying to show us, I believe, in the bigger picture. I don't know all the details of this in the mind of God, but it's certainly that when we put our, whatever we're putting our trust in, those are things he sort of knocks out from under us so that we'll trust him more. 
to make us realize that we need Jesus more than we need our freedoms, to make us realize that Jesus is more important to us than those things. Uh, You know, the last few years have done anything. They reveal our idols to us. What we love more than God and we value more than God. What our, our autonomy is being threatened and we don't like that. And God's possibly saying, you know what? You're not autonomous anyway. Every breath you have comes from me. Everything you have comes from me. So when God doesn't make sense, and whether I can put it together or not, his goal is to bring glory, his glory. And I don't know all the details or all the puzzle pieces to that, and you don't either, but I believe he does that by kicking out things from under us that we're leaning on that are not him. And trust and rest in him alone. And that's why faith comes before this particular response. It just makes us turn to him and trust him. Because we can't trust in ourselves. And sometimes life gets uncomfortable, but even that serves his purposes. I was reading about a missionary and uh, or hearing, listening to a guy talk about a missionary in um, Pakistan who, imagine being a believer in Pakistan. Your total persecution. You have no rights. You're marginalized by society. You're poor. You don't get hired by, for jobs very easily. And just talked about the faith of those believers in that Pakistani church in meeting in some secret place in Pakistan. Just trusting God because life is not comfortable for them. It's not easy for them. But it serves his purpose and he's glorified in in their response because they have faith and that's all they've got to hold on to. And I I mentioned this earlier, but here's another response we see. Uh, when When we don't think God is making sense or in control, we're really vulnerable. You know what we're vulnerable to? We're vulnerable to idols. That's what we're vulnerable to. We're vulnerable to running to idols to hold us up. We're vulnerable to finding something to lean on. Yes, yes, we, yes, we believe God, but I need something else. It's syncretism. It's like, the, it's like the, the Israelites. They had God, yes, but they also had the high places. Just in case God doesn't come through, maybe my idol will come through. You see, that's what I'm talking about here. When we look at our world, we get very vulnerable to running to idols. And... Notice in verse 18 of chapter 2, what prophet is the idol when its maker has carved it or an image, a teacher of falsehood for its maker trust in his own handiwork when he fashions a speechless idol. So he's calling them out for their idolatry. Both uh, the Babylonians and the Israelites. What are you doing? You're taking a piece of wood, thinking a piece of wood is going to help you. Now, we don't have a piece of wood, but we have other idols. Woe to him, verse 19, who says to a piece of wood, Awake, to a mute stone, arise. And what is your teacher? Behold, it's overlaid with gold and silver, and there's no breath at all inside. See, where do we turn when we have a problem? I guess you can Google it. That'll certainly give you some kind of answer. You know, it always does. 
or we elect the next guy, the better guy. We've got to get things back, so we trust in the political system to somehow turn things around. We put our trust in that. Legislate it back. That's where we put our trust. And like I said earlier, we see our idols more clearly in times of difficulty. We grumble about losing and complain about the inconveniences or whatever. So God is saying here, when I don't make sense to you, don't run to an idol. Don't run to an idol. Do not turn to things that don't prom- that, that might promise resolution, but they cannot help you. You know, we really do trust in political solutions. And I believe the temptation that we have had in the body of Christ in the last few years is the temptation to overcome evil with evil. You follow me? Overcome evil with evil. I'm reading a book right now on Christian nationalism because I'm trying to understand what this is all about. And there's different versions of it, so don't jump to conclusions that you think you know what it is just because I use that word. It's got different definitions out there. But one author I've read has actually said in there that we should take up civil disobedience, a just, excuse me, a just revolution, he calls it. Folks, that is not what Paul says in Romans 12. Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. We don't let that become, we don't give in to that temptation. I understand what they're trying to do. They're trying to do something to fix our world. But their solutions are not rooted in Scripture. In fact, the Bible is rarely quoted in this book. In fact, he quotes Maccabees, which is about wars (laughs) in this book. The wisdom of God says, do not overcome be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And that's the only solution. And verse 20, and if you're still in Habakkuk 2.19 and 20, verse 20, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. What, what should bring a hush over every idol is trust and settledness that God reigns, that God's in control, that he runs the world and only he is good and only he is wise. The Lord reigns is the only political maxim we need, according to, to John Newton. The Lord reigns. And then finally, the last response. God has spoken. God has said these things. God has uh, laid out to him. Turn, by example, turn to God with your questions. Choose to live by faith. Remember that God's goal is for his glory and don't trust in idols. And then finally in chapter 3, we see Habakkuk again responding and he does it by picking up his guitar and playing a song. That's what he does. Look at the last verse of chapter 3. For the choir director on my stringed instruments. (laughs) He has just sung a song here, a prayer. That's what chapter 3 is. It's a prayer in which he rehearses the faithfulness of God. That's what chapter 3 is. And so if you're wondering what the fifth response would be, it would be just follow once again Habakkuk's example and sing a song. Sing. 
singing has a way of quieting a troubled heart. Singing good theological um, music, songs, have a way of comforting the spirit and the heart. They lift us up in our thinking and our minds to the greatness and the glory of God. And that's what he does here. Let me take you through this real quickly as we close this morning. The fifth response is just we sing our way into thinking right. Verse 2, O Lord, I have heard the report about you, and I fear. O Lord, revive your work in your midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. He's saying, God, I'm fearful, I'm scared. I want to see a revival. All that's in verse 2. God, I'm singing a song that you would revive us. I'm singing a song that you would show us mercy, not wrath. We deserve wrath. We all deserve wrath, but show us mercy. We need to preach the gospel to others who are under the wrath of God, that they would know the mercy of God. And then what he does in verse 3, he begins this rehearsal of God's work in their lives in the Exodus. You see that in verses 3 through 5, where he just talks about the Exodus. These are places along the Exodus when they were delivered many times in the wilderness. He acted in the past. He does great acts. He's done great acts before. He will do great acts again just to build their faith and, and to give them strength. And he, he talks about, um, in, in verse 3, his splendor covers the heavens and the earth is full of praise. And these are locations along the way, Mount Paran and Taman. Verse 4, the, the Shekinah glory of God was what guided them, the hiding of his power. Before him goes pestilence and plague comes after him. God controlled all those judgments that they faced. He is powerful. Verse 6, he stood and surveyed the earth. He looked and startled the nations. Uh, mountains were shattered. Hills collapsed. His ways are everlasting. And that's what we need to do. We need to sing about the greatness of God. And maybe, maybe the reason we get hopeless and discouraged at times is because God is small to us. The problems of this world are bigger than God to us. And we need this constant reminder that our God is bigger and greater and the great divine acts that he has done throughout the history of his people need to be reminded, we need to be reminded of those things. We need to increase our view of, of, of God and, and see him as he really is. And I think if that's in our minds, we won't stumble. If we see God as he really is and, and lift up his holy and majestic and all-powerful and almighty name. And music is something that certainly can do that. So that we'll have a righteous response. Look at verses 7. In verse 7, he describes coming judgment. This is judgment in the future. Uh, the Lord will rage against the rivers and anger against the rivers and wrath against the sea. Chastisement. You cleave the earth with, with the rivers. The mountains saw you and quaked. The downpour of water swept by. 
When God shows up, these are things that happen. And the sun and the moon stood in their places. They went away at the light of your arrows, at the radiance of your gleaming spear, verse 11 says. In indignation, you marched through the earth. In anger, you trampled the nations. Righteous anger will one day come. Righteous judgment will one day come when he comes to judge. You went forth for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. He will come one day to save, and he will come one day to judge. See, in this song, and you can take time to read it later this afternoon maybe, but in this song, he is just rehearsing the greatness and the goodness and the power and the majesty of God. He is just increasing uh, his view of God as he sings this song in the face of what's coming and what is going on in, his, in the present for him. And then he ends it, verse 13, with the word Salah. I mean, he just kind of makes you pause when you think about this judgment that's coming. That's a term for take a pause, verse 13, into verse 13. And, and when this happens one day, the wrongs will may be made right. He will, he will address every injustice. It will be a horrible day for sinners. But for the salvation of his people, it will be a great and wonderful day. He has not forgotten this point. And in verse 14, Habakkuk ends this way. You pierced with his own spears the head of his throngs. They stormed in to scatter us. Their exultation was like those who devour the oppressed in secret. You trampled on the sea with your horses on the surge of many waters. I heard my inward parts tremble. At the sound, my lips quivered. Decay entered my bones, and in my place I trembled, because I must wait quietly for the day of distress for the people to arise who will invade us. So Habakkuk's thinking back to chapter 1, when God told him things are only going to get worse before they get better. And he says, I could get a panic attack over that. But he says, sing your heart quiet, rest in his promises. And this is how he ends it. You're familiar with these verses. We read earlier in our service this morning. Though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olives should fail and the fields produce no food, Though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls. In other words, the normal things won't be there anymore. What you normally expect won't be there. The, the normal things of life will not be there. Yet, verse 18, I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength and he has made my feet like hind's feet and makes me walk on the high places. God is able to protect me in that, to keep me in that, to hold on to me, and to help me to live above all that with hope and confidence in who he is. And that's Habakkuk. That's Habakkuk going through similar things that you and I face and telling us this is how to respond this is how we respond. This is how we, when life gets confusing and difficult and God doesn't seem to make sense, tell him, express your concerns, your questions to him. Don't turn away from him. Turn to him. Remember, faith is not just something you did at conversion, but it's something you do throughout your whole life. You trust him. 
Don't forget, this is all for his glory. One day he will be uh, glorified. It's all for his purpose of being glorified in the earth. And the last thing you want to do is turn to idols. You don't want to turn to an idol and trust in anything else. And finally, sing. Sing about the truths of God's character. Father, thank you for our time this morning. Thank you for this book. Thank you for the practicality of this book. Thank you, God, how it reminds us of uh, our time in 2023, written 2,700 years ago. The message is still the same. You're the same God. You have not changed. You're working in ways that are not our ways. But God, we know that you're in charge and in control, and we just praise you for that this morning. And we just thank you for the truth of your word that sustains us and gives us hope. We thank you that we can look to your scriptures this morning and and find answers to maybe not the why of it all, but at least on how to respond to it all. And we thank you for that this morning. We thank you, God, that we are not left to our own understanding, but we have your understanding and your wisdom. And Father, we don't want to be guilty of running to things that do not support us and stand, hold us up, but things that will only let us down. Forgive us when we've done that. Forgive us when we've turned to other things, trusted in ourselves or trusted in others more than we've trusted in you. Forgive us. We praise you and we love you. In Christ's name, amen.